and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I am Mariah E. Gates, and this is Minute 34, which begins with the dropship coming in on final approach and ends with the dropship deploying her weapons. And thanks for coming back again, Mariah, and being my guest host. You've been a big help this week. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. And Asia Romano is back again as our guest. Thanks for coming back for a fourth consecutive day. My pleasure. Happy to be here. All right. So, we, man, we, we, I'm starting to think maybe we got a little ahead of ourselves with all the effects talk in the last minute because that's kind of what my notes are for this minute. My, too. like, last note for this minute is, in all caps, VFX exclamation point. Yeah. <laughs> the effects in this are so – I mean, we could get really nostalgic here on a couple of things for me. Um, so we get this this dropship center frame zooming towards the camera, right? And I'm the first to admit – I love it. I love this, but it also is really, it's really fake. Like, it's not like the most realistic looking of shots. It but kind man, of I love it. Of the part in um, the second Star Wars where the when you first see the AT-ATs walking in the, or AT-AT, I don't know, I call them AT-ATs. Oh, uh, no, no, they're the called AT-ATs. Is it AT-ATs? Okay, because someone corrected <laughs> me the other me. day, and I was like, What? I thought it was anyways. anyways. Sorry. <laughs> you know, that, that's minute. an ongoing argument over okay. the Star Wars minute. I'm going to call them AT-ATs. The, but you Thank know you. when they're walking through the snow and it's really fake but really awesome at the same time? Yep. That's what this – that was the first thing my brain went to was like, oh, my God, it's like that again where it's like super fake. But I also love it so much. It's the, the first thing I was going to talk about was the backdrop. So you got this inky, like swirly, cloudy sky, right, in the background. And it's as fake as can be. But I love it so much. There's two different shots like this. Well, there's three, really. You can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. So Cecil B. DeMille definitely used this kind of effect for the sky when Moses is parting the Red Sea. Then Spielberg absolutely thinking about that shot when uh, Indiana Jones and, and, and his crew are digging into the Well of Souls and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Get the same kind, you get the same kind of sky, this ominous, otherworldly, very fake-looking, but still beautiful sky and then of course uh in conan the barbarian when uh his conan young conan's getting the riddle of steel told to him by his father they has the same kind of background which is perfect for the fact that there's this mythological moment happening i just love it i don't know if i love it because it works or if i love it because of the nostalgia though um i don't know how how do you guys feel about this sky effect i think it works personally but then i don't believe that nostalgia is it doesn't I don't believe that nostalgia is necessarily a bad thing so I don't I don't actually know if I think it works because of nostalgia or I think it works but I don't care to distinguish either that's cool I think it works too because before when we when they open the bomb doors and you see the the planet below you're you're definitely above the cloud cover you know so it's just an orienting effect too you know before you were above the clouds and now you're below them so yeah, we're, on that practical level, it definitely works. And it also, uh, you know, I was saying earlier with that that over-the-top shot down towards the planet, it actually had kind of a photoreal effect. I think because of how minimal amount of the planet you could see against that model, I think it actually looked very real. So you could say there was a bit of a juxtaposition here, too, where up there it was, it was a little bit more real, and here you're more otherworldly. We're now in – we have taken that express elevator to hell – now we're in a whole other place. So this has an otherness to it that I think is effective. But 
um, I, I assume also you guys want to talk about the ship. Uh, I, w- I just wanted to talk about the clouds a little bit, but the ship effect as it's coming towards us is one thing, but the ship effect after that, where it deploys the weapons, I know we're jumping kind of the, to the end here, but there's definitely something more I want to talk about. But since we're talking about effects, we might as well talk about it. So this is a go motion effect, right? And that's what you're talking about, Mariah, with the ADATs. That's what yeah. they were as well. I something about go motion just hits my pleasure center. Like I, when I see go motion, I just, I don't know what it is. It's a beautiful thing to me. The ADATs, Ed 209 and, and RoboCop, all those kind of effects. I know they're fake. I know they're so phony looking, but they're so beautiful to me. No, I, I love them. I love it too. I think it's a beautiful effect and it reminds me of, uh, it's like the emotion equivalent of um, matte paintings. Like in um, my favorite of all matte painting films is Black Narcissus. And you know what you're seeing is fake, but the illusion of those matte paintings and the way they're lit and everything is so gorgeous and so like perfectly crafted that you love it and you love it because of the craft. And that's how I feel about this effect as well. I think we also see during the sequence this ship transform from something like it's almost like the ship itself undergoes that metamorphosis from being on the outside of this new reality to being on the inside of it. You know, does that make sense? Because I, I feel like when you're watching it come in, it almost seems, you know, it could kind of be, it sort of resembles an, an alien exoskeleton itself almost, you know, it's got the, um, like it's got like a, a head almost in the, do you, do you guys follow this? Like if I'm looking at it, like when it's coming through the clouds, it looks almost like it's, you know, some sort of monster, you know, it's got that very shiny metallic uh, skeleton. It's got, um, you know, you could read it as being sort of alien on its own. And then when it starts to unfold itself, you know, we've, we've watched it go from this very, like, known um, military object to, as it's landing on this planet, being something that looks sort of new and entirely um, unique. That's true. The previous shots of it, we really just get the nose, right? Like, we get the, the cockpit... Um, sitting on top of the nose and it looks sort of like a, an A-10 warthog, the, the plane that it's been around forever. And I recognize it mostly because there was a G.I. Joe toy of the A-10. But that's what I always think of when I see this uh, ship. I always think of the A-10 and how the paintings on the side, it gives you that traditional military look. But that, you're right. When you see it completely deployed, it looks more like a big bird of prey or something. Um, something a little bit more menacing and different. Yeah, there's a lot of otherness going on once we get down into the under the atmosphere, into the atmosphere of, the, of LV LV426. Things are changing, and visually speaking, for sure. Okay, we also have another great moment. Um, I don't write down who says this. You guys will probably remember. Someone says, "I have I got a bad feeling about this drop." Oh, that's Frost. I don't know if we see who actually answers him. The person who's like, "You always have a bad feeling about this drop." Yeah, and then somebody, yeah. and then the, not the commander, what is his name? Um, the, how did we, Apone? Apone goes, um, I'll tell your parents about you when we come back without you or whatever. And it's really sad. Oh, I thought that was Frost. I thought that was Frost too, because it's, I think because that's his response. Like, I like you can keep, you know, you can mock me for my bad feeling, but when I'm the, you oh. know. When I'm the guy that. who survives. I'm not sure that I could be reading it. Like, I could have heard it wrong, but I thought that's what, how that went, that exchange, because it's Frost's answer to, you know, and it's such a great horror oh. moment, true. You know, like, it's yeah, because, like, like, some, we've basically, he's like, haha, you're going to die. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, no. Basically. But also, like, that's a thing that people did where they're like, 
hey, I'm shipping off. If I die, tell my parents. Hey, if you die, tell my parents. And it's like a really dark moment to be joking. Yeah, it's right in the middle of all this bravado, right? Like we've had all these this machismo bragging about the equipment, everybody acting tough. And then you get this little hint of foreshadowing, I guess. And it's funny yeah. because it's coming from Frost, who mm, I don't want to get too far ahead of things, but he's not the one that's going to be writing letters home to anyone. So it's got a bit of irony, and you're right. It's got a little bit of a touch of a horror movie kind of line to it. But it's in the background. It's the, it's not even a scene in itself where you have this exchange happening between people. You're not even fully aware who's having the exchange, maybe. Yeah, I messed it up even, so there you go. Which um, I think is even- intentional. I don't think it was supposed to be in the front, the forefront of the scene, so... And then you have that great moment with Drake where his camera's not working, so he just bangs it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted, to, I wanted to get into that, too, because while that conversation's happening, I think this is some of the best, like, good old-fashioned inventory-taking style editing that we get here. Because we need to establish this idea of the body cam and the monitors and all that stuff. We take it for granted now. It's it's It's... It's something that's real now, for one, but we've also seen it in movies so much that we take it for granted. But this is a very innovative thing for this movie. We had not seen these kind of body cam things before and soldiers with body cams and monitors and so on. But we get this lovely little progression of cuts that shows us everything we need to know about it. So we get the conversation going, the bad feeling conversation, but we cut to a camera. So we see the camera. Okay. Maybe we've noticed that before, but right now we're, it's in a tight close up, So we know that, okay, we pay attention. Then we cut to a POV of the camera and it's Hudson. You got Hudson's name. And I think Hudson might even say something right there in order to sort of anchor us to the shot. Then we cut to a screen with the exact same image on it. Then we pull back a little bit and we see the vitals going across on the screen, on the screen above it with the names all matched up. And then we get Gorman reading these monitors. And one of the things that you notice, so now we have the entire system. We understand how this whole system works. And we're really going to need to know how that works because once the shit goes down, we're not going to want to think about it. We're going to want to understand it completely. And I think we do. I don't think there's any way you could miss how these things work unless you're looking at your phone when you're watching the movie. You know, This is good old-fashioned inventory taking, letting you know what's going to happen. And then it leads to Gorman. And now suddenly Gorman seems really comfortable, right? Yeah, I think he starts out, this actually, when I was watching the sequence for the first time, I couldn't, I, I didn't actually, I, visually sometimes I have trouble like recognizing people and especially tracking them from scene to scene depending on how they're they're portrayed. And like, I didn't actually get that Gorman was the guy, was the same lieutenant freaking, like I was just like, is that actually Gorman? Because or is it somebody else, some other lieutenant? Because he's so completely different when he's actually going through the drop than when he's sitting at these controls. Does that make sense? Like, visually, he's not sweating here. He doesn't look like he's just been through, you know, this very frightening experience. He's just completely 100% back to normal. And so you see him go from sitting at this command, you know, being in control, and then pushing back and getting in, you know, getting in place for the drop, going through the drop and being really freaked out. And then suddenly he's back, you know, to himself again. And that actually really threw me. I had to watch it a couple of times because I, I wanted to see him actually back up and get into place and see if I can figure out like when he actually, you know, went back and forth. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And I'm, not, I'm not sure it actually works very well as a transition because I do feel like he's he goes from being, you know, completely calm and cool to being like completely sweating and then back to calm and cool, you know. Oh, but see, um, I see it as a good to me. It's shows him though in the physical realm. 
Like in the drop, he's he's way out of his element. But as soon as he starts looking at monitors, you know, right, I think right. we see this in life now. I think he's the kind of the proto gamer soldier, right? Where he's much more comfortable just looking at monitors and sliding around on that office chair than he is actually right, being right. in in combat. So I'm not sure. No, maybe I, I missed it. the I other cut you're character. talking about. Well, I get it. I get it for his character, but just physically, I was like, why? Where did all his sweat go? Like, <laughs> right? You know. Well, you know, you could look at it stylistically as, see, he's so comfortable now. The sweat's gone. Everything's gone, you know. <laughs> That's funny because I noticed I noticed that too. Like in the earlier close-ups of him, the sweat is so prominent. Right. So prominent. And then it's just completely gone. And that's actually what mm. threw me, you know. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely, like, that's why I was, like, trying to double-check that I was actually watching Gorman in those scenes and not, you know, that somebody else had appeared and I wasn't aware of them. <laughs> See, I kind of like it because even if the continuity of it isn't accurate on a physical level, I like that he's so different once he's just turns around and looks at those screens. Like he's, it's like his hair is all of a sudden in place and you know, that kind of a, sort of, it's kind of a comedic thing to talk about, but I like it. I like that, that we're getting this guy. Oh, he's so comfortable here. This is his realm. And when that all fails him later, when all the monitors start going out later, he's at a complete loss. Yeah, it's that it's the ongoing theme of these people p- placing their trust in these technological tools and then yep. having breakdowns when they fail. So then we also still have Hicks asleep. Yeah. And the scene ends with, this time I think I'm right, Apone saying to wake him up, right? Did I get the right person? Yeah, yeah, that's Apone. Okay, good. Well, he, <laughs> so- tells some, he tells somebody else to wake him up. He tells someone to wake him up, yeah. And uh, I... I didn't write down when I wrote down quotes. I didn't write down who said things. So I'm like relying on my memory. Um, so I'm glad I got that one right. Um, but I like that moment because um, all this, everyone's like getting together. And in the previous moment, they're, they're all, you know, they've all had the camaraderie over realizing that their commander hasn't really done this before. And Hicks has been asleep through all of it. And he's still asleep. And there's been a lot of character like development and, um, just through looks and things, and Hicks has been asleep. He's just out. <laughs> well, that's character development right there. I mean, the, he's the coolest guy in the room. Yeah, he's, right? a, he's a cucumber. Yep. I keep noticing, too, how, uh, like, in every single shot that we see Burke, he's, he keeps clocking Ripley for her reaction. Like, every time like we see Burke, he's looking at Ripley for her reaction to something. Either to, and I'm not sure if he's just watching her because he's wary of her or because he feels like she's going to keep him safe. So she, he should, you know, keep his eye on her or something. But it's, it's, it's just telling to me that, that throughout this entire sequence, Burke is just completely, he's so aware of, of his connection to Ripley and his, whatever his job is concerning Ripley at this point. I'm just glad that in these minutes, pretty much as soon as he's with Ripley and the crew, he stops calling her kiddo. Because uh, for the first you know, 20 minutes or so, like every other word out of his mouth is kiddo, and I just I couldn't handle it. Yeah, we, <laughs> really we talked about that. <laughs> talked but, about that um, quite a lot. That last time when he's in uh, the, her apartment, I might have I might have rambled a little bit about oh how God. annoying it is. It's like, it's shut so, up, dude. It's so annoying. But the thing about it that I like uh, is how true it is to that kind of man. And yeah. the thing that's great about Burke and about Paul Reiser's performance, which apologies to Mr. Paul Reiser, I love him, and I had forgotten that he was in this movie. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I know. And everyone was like, how do you forget? He is just so he's, brilliant. In he's this film. so good. And, like, 
every shot of him, he's acting, even when it's just his eyes. And it's like he's always calculating something in his brain or he's like reacting to the situation and trying to figure out the best way to make profit, basically. And it's, oh, he's so good in this. The thing that kills me about Burke as a character and the way that Paul Reiser acts him is that he is so completely emblem. Like he's basically even still to this day in the, in terms of how the franchise has evolved and developed, he is still the closest, um, the closest we've ever gotten to understanding the Whalen corporation as an entity. Like he is the Whalen corporation essentially. And so he's not just acting as himself. He's acting for this entire system of exploitation and big brotherness and manipulation and, you know, non-transparency and subterfuge. And he carries all of that so well that even as far as the franchise has evolved, like we still have never had any any other character even come close to to that sort of representation. I think, I think uh, wasn't Charlize Theron's character in Prometheus, like, close? Yeah, she was. But, but, but she was, like, I don't think she carried it off as well as he did. I mean, no, that, no, I definitely not in terms of like being that iconic. Like when you think of the Whaling Corporation, you think of Burke. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize it was Paul Reiser that whole time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I rewatched all of Mad About You last year and I didn't once think about the fact that he was in Aliens. Um, no, he's just so good. That's that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, we we were trying to a couple weeks ago. We were trying to come up with a better like weasel cinematic weasel than uh, Burke, and the only one we could really come up with was Tony Curtis and Sweet Smell of Success. That might be. Oh yeah. Even, even maybe <laughs> yeah. had might have been a model but, for Paul Reiser because the hair even is he's got a very Tony Curtis esque haircut here in this movie. It's a little bit more exaggerated, but he's kind of a rat bastard though. Whereas Burke is definitely a weasel, and I think there's okay. a distinction. That's um, good. You're right. There's a probably. slight distinction. There's some character I'm thinking of that reminds me of Burke, and I can't for the life of me figure out what I'm thinking of. It'll come to me. Summoning glasses. <laughs> In something. He's wearing glasses. Mm. What is it? Oh, um, obviously. It's the lawyer in Jurassic Park. He's not wearing glasses. Um, it's the lawyer in Jurassic Park. Has sure. a very similar... He's a little sleazier, though, because he's a lawyer, but... Um, you know, when he's talking about, like, we'll have a coupon day <laughs> whenever, like, he's so corporate in that movie. And that's maybe the closest I can think of. Well, and he has almost the exact same outcome, right? Like, he separates himself from the rest of the people, and that's his downfall. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I never put those two together at all, but good call. So the last thing I had on, on this, other than VFX, was... Uh, how much I love Vasquez's red headband and the oh. fact that she gets to reunited with her really big gun. Like, <laughs> she has the biggest gun. Her gun is so much bigger than everyone else's gun. Do you think it's bigger than Drake's gun? Even though it's supposed to be the same gun? You think it hers might be a small It maybe it's just because she's smaller than him that it looks yeah. so big. But, like... Well, she's also, whenever they're shown together, she's all she's always in the front of the frame. And so she takes up, like, her gun and her takes up more of the... Space visually than he does, than and yeah, so which we're definitely supposed to see her as taking his lead. Or, yeah. or sorry, I said that wrong. She, she's taking the lead, he's he's definitely her follower. So, having oh, her yeah. framed that way, having her gun seem bigger, everything about it makes perfect sense for the character dynamic we have there. She's clearly the best warrior of this group oh, of for warriors. Sure. 
Is this the minute where we hear we're in the pipe five by five, or was that in the last minute? Because oh I my just, god, did we I not really... mention five by five? I was like, did we miss it? <laughs> my god, I think we did. <laughs> yeah, I actually googled it and 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 found a bunch of people asking what the whole line meant because people don't know, and I'm just like, I, do I need to know though? It's such a great line. Well, apparently it's a um, it's a radio term. Like five by five is 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 some sort of uh, reference to sound quality, and it means that you're you're being articulate and you're coming in loud and clear, basically. So yeah. what it, what she's actually saying is we're in the pipe, which means everything's good to go. We're in progress and loud and clear. Everything's fine. So which but you can get that just from her delivery. Well, yeah, I mean, I get what she means. Why would but she's using it. She's not using it as an audio term. Right? No, no, I think yeah. it, it's point, just being we're just good is what she's saying. Yeah, yeah. It's just jargony. Okay, I've never really known what that meant. I can't believe we forgot to mention it when I can imagine. So two, so two days ago, <laughs> in the time of these airing, we're going to get a lot of messages saying, "How could you not have mentioned five by five? Oh, sorry, guys. Well, Asia, please remind the listeners where they can find you online. I'm at Vox as Asia Romano, and you can find me on Twitter at Asia Romano. And sorry, I'm. <laughs> I got lost. In what I was thinking, I was looking at my notes for the next minute. Um, I'm Mariah E. Gates, and you can find me at, at Old Film Slicker all over the internet. And you can find us at AlienMinute.com or on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast or on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. Um, you can also come over to Facebook. As I just mentioned, we do have a Facebook listeners group. Feel free to request to, to join that and then tell us how uh, poor of a job we did. <laughs> by not mentioning uh, in the pipe five by five or whatever else you have to complain about or compliment us. You can compliment us too. That'd be fine. All right. uh, So that's going to do it for minute 34. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 35.